If you were looking for the most believable, honest, giving person in Greenville, South Carolina. She grew up in an orphanage, Salvation Army orphanage. Someone who spent nearly seven decades on her feet, serving others. She was worked in the clothing house, thrift stores, the church. Someone who understood what it meant to rise above a tough upbringing. She never went to school. She did not know how to read and write. You'd only need to meet a woman most people knew as Miss May. She had a Sunday school class of infants, nursery basically. In 1932, she was Greenville's first Salvation Army Christmas time bell ringer. In front of Woolworths there at Washington, Maine, every year during Christmas. And after that, she worked to help others for another 68 years, running a summer camp's first aid service, managing a thrift store, cooking in a soup kitchen, and collecting donations on foot all over Greenville. When people celebrated Miss May's retirement in the year 2000, they told those kinds of stories. 19 years later, if you talk to the right people, you might hear some lesser told tales. <laughs> she used to run bootleg liquor. Her and my daddy used to run moonshine. Miss May was May McIntyre, a woman with a servant's heart, a shining legacy, and six children. And outside of that, you know, she's just mom. That is a man named Don McIntyre. He's one of May's six kids. The only one who's ever been willing to talk about what his mom did to send a man to death row. My mother, Dora May McIntyre, was one of the key witnesses against Mr. Wakefield on this murder. That's how Don tells it. His mother was one of the key witnesses. Other people tell it this way. If Miss May had never taken the stand, Charles Wakefield Jr. might never have gone to death row. I'm Brad Willis. This is Murder Etc. If you've been listening to Murder Etc. since the very beginning, you know Billy Wilkins, the man who prosecuted Charles Wakefield Jr., steadfastly believes he sent the right man to death row. Innocent people should not be convicted and they should not be in prison. And if a mistake is made, it should be corrected. I do not believe the mistake was made. And I know things that other people don't know. In our early episodes, Wilkins told you about the first thing he says he knew that a neighbor of Charles Wakefield's stepmother told detectives Charles Wakefield's stepmother was worried because she had seen her stepson the morning of the murders. Wilkins says that neighbor said, Wakefield's stepmom said this. Charles runs in the back door of the house while I'm in the kitchen and he says, Mama, anybody ask where I am, tell them I slept late. I've been in the, in the bedroom all morning. And he, then he goes in and she says he changes his clothes and he leaves, and I'm just worried about it. Well, that's that's pretty, pretty good evidence, you know. The thing about Wilkins' pretty good evidence was nobody made a record of it in the police file, and neither that neighbor nor Wakefield's stepmother testified at trial. Regardless of the things Wilkins knew that other people didn't, that was number one. Well, that's number one, and number two, and I can't remember her name, but she was the daughter, I believe, of a woman who did testify. 
Talking about Diane McIntyre? Yes, I see. We'll get back to Diane McIntyre. But the woman who did testify, that was Miss May McIntyre, one of Greenville's most beloved citizens. On an October evening in 2019, as acorns dropped onto his metal carport, May's son, Don McIntyre, told Andy Etheridge and I about his mom. She and a couple of more ladies would go around on Friday and Saturdays and solicit money from bars and garages and just anybody on the streets, you know, for the Salvation Army. And, you know, because they just work mostly on donations. Part of Miss May's donation route was Greenville's Pendleton Street, where the Looper Garage sat across the street from a vacant lot. Miss May said she parked her car there and headed toward the Loopers. At least, that's what she told a jury when Billy Wilkins called her for trial in the Charles Wakefield Jr. case. She collected money periodically, and, and Mr. Loop would always give her a dollar. And on this particular morning, she had gone in and gone in the garage, gotten a contribution. Miss May told the jury she was on her way out of the garage and walking back to her car with her eyes on the driveway in front of her. And she said, I saw these shoes. That's the first thing she saw. And they were elevated shoes. And she said, I kept looking up because Wakefield was a tall fellow, about 6'6 six, six or something like that. And she says, we just passed, there it was. Miss May told the jury when she made it to the street, she heard what she thought was a car backfiring. She crossed the street, heard the sound again, waited for her partner to get back to the car, and then drove away. That, she said, was on January 31st, 1975, a day when West Greenville was covered in cops and sirens and news people, all wanting to know who killed Frank and Rufus Looper. Miss May didn't speak to police for another eight months. Miss May's legacy of service is legendary in Greenville. Her family's legacy is more complicated. We knew about some of it, but not nearly as much as we learned when we met Don McIntyre. Andy Etheridge got Don to sit down with us not long before we produced this episode. He called my nephew up in Indianapolis, who's a lieutenant on the fire department up there, and he still wants to know where you got his cell number from. <laughs> Don says he's the last of the McIntyre clan in Greenville County, a 75-year-old man who was once a child before Greenville started building its Tony neighborhoods for the moneyed class. I started work whenever I was eight years old. My daddy and my uncle, they had a painting contracting business. And whenever they built, first built Botany Woods, I got the great job of every Saturday and Sunday and every day I was out of school painting closets in all those new homes. My wife and family now can just mention painting and I cringe. <laughs> I won't do nothing. I'll pay thousands of dollars for I'll do it. I will. So Don left high school, joined the Navy, did seven years, and might have done more, but he got an offer from Greyhound. And before long, he was driving buses all over America. Don loved life on the road. But one night ended up at a wedding where two law enforcement officers were getting married. It led him to getting his own badge. And then one law enforcement job after another that landed him at the airport 
as an airport police officer. I went to work out there and thought I was going to be bored to death because I was a street cop. Best job in law enforcement I ever had. I got to meet people from all over the world on a daily basis. Like a lot of the old cops we've interviewed, Miss May's son Don wishes he could still live a cop's life. I'm 75 years old now, and I had my heart attack when I was either 56 or 57. And if I hadn't had that heart attack and these medical problems, and they still had me, I'd still be a cop at the airport. <laughs> I loved it. That night, on his back porch, Don waxed nostalgic about his time at the airport. But eventually, that conversation wound around to the second thing Prosecutor Billy Wilkins said he knew about Don's sister, Diane. Diane, she grew up a beautiful girl, real beautiful girl. Diane McIntyre, Don's little sister. Diane was more like my daddy. My daddy liked to drink a lot, and I don't know about the party, and I didn't pay no attention whenever I was a kid. All I did was roller skate at Cleveland Park Skating Rink and paint closets. While Don was out on the Greyhound circuit, his sister took a different road. Got with her own crowd, started smoking pot, licking, shooting heroin, LSD, whatever. And by the early 1970s, Diane had found a husband. She ended up marrying this fella in 71. Did you ever know him? Or Mike Cowart. Mike Cowart. If you don't remember that name from our last episode, he was the small-time heroin addict who got arrested in the summer of 1975 for a series of break-ins. I knew about the crime spree that Mike had been on, breaking into houses and businesses and stuff like that. Cowart ended up pleading guilty, expecting a reasonable sentence. Instead, a judge gave him 24 years in prison. Mike had been married for four years, had a baby, and now was about to go to prison for longer than he'd been alive. What would you do in that situation? Don says, Miss May answered that question. Mother told me sometime during that ordeal that Diane had asked her to help these two detectives find this guy who shot the loopers. And in the deal, they're going to get Mike out. The deal, he said, is going to get Mike out. I challenge a Hollywood writer to pitch a script so ridiculous. A beloved servant, a Christmas time bell ringer, a 68-year veteran of the Salvation Army, trying to help her ne'er-do-well son-in-law beat a long stretch in prison by testifying in a double murder trial. It sounds preposterous. But Miss May's daughter, Diane, she apparently didn't think it was so silly, according to the prosecutor in the case. She called, I think she called Bridges. Bridges? was Mike Bridges, one of the two lead investigators in the Looper murders, on his way to becoming chief of police. She had some information, and she had a, a relative, a nephew, a son, or somebody in her family that she wanted some help with 
from the police. More than 40 years later, Billy Wilkins didn't remember at first. Diane was trying to spring her husband, Mike Coward, the father of her young child. But Wilkins did remember the gist of Diane Cowart's appeal to the detectives. And so she called and said, I want to tell you, my mother has information about the Lupus killing, but she will not volunteer it. But she is, uh, I don't know how she conveyed it to Bridges, but she's, she's such an honest cr Christian woman that if she's asked, she'll tell it. But she's not going to volunteer it. No, Miss May did not stand up and march down to the police department and file a report. Instead, something else happened. I knew that Looper's garage was on Mother's route because I had driven her one Saturday and I had stopped there with her. Don McIntyre wasn't entirely tuned in to Greenville at the time. He was out on the road, driving buses, making a life of his own. It was all about getting out of the Greenville and making money. But he always came back. Whenever I come home one time, I run up on my sister, and she told me that mother had witnessed it. My sister witnessed what? She said the Luper murders. It didn't seem impossible to Don, but his mother had been silent for months. Well, when I come home, I got to talking to mother about it. The murder had happened in January, and now it was September. Mother told me that two detectives from Greenville City was coming over to her house and wanted to talk to her. Well, I got there, there was an unmarked car sitting in the driveway. And I walked in and I met two Greenville City detectives. Police reports filed by Mike Bridges back this up, but they make no mention of Don being in the room. Nevertheless, the story goes something like this. They had in a folder what they called a photo lineup. Mike Bridges spread out six pictures on the table and asked Miss May to pick out the man she saw outside the loopers that day. Mama did like this back and forth and said, okay, uh, that one. And she pointed out who I found out later was Wakefield. That much is true, according to Bridges' reports in the police file. But it leaves out one thing. Miss May didn't pick out one man. She picked out two. One was Charles Wakefield, and one was a man named Larry Poole. Does that name ring a bell? Because if you listen to an episode called The Other Word on the Street, it should. She tells the cops that somebody had also seen Larry Poole that day driving around in a red Camaro with Frank Walker. Larry Poole was an escaped murderer who another law enforcement source had fingered for the Looper murders seven months before the cops ever spoke to Miss May. Miss May, either of her own volition or because it was incredibly convenient for the investigation, picked out two men from a six-man photo lineup. And though Miss May said she only saw one man walking up to the Looper garage, when she looked at the six photos in front of her, she picked out the only two suspects the police had at the time. Later, Miss May went down to the police station 
and picked Charles Wakefield Jr. out of a live lineup. That ID set Wakefield on a path to death row. And Miss May's son, Don, a man who was in his 30s at that point, says his mother's story about that day outside the Looper garage never changed. But every time I run up on my mama, same story. So just so we're clear, what is your feeling about whether your mom was there or not there that day? My opinion, my opinion only, mother wasn't there. My mother was not there. More on that right after this break. When you get involved in a project like this, one that takes years and years of your life, you stop thinking about it so much as work and instead come to believe it's just part of what you do, maybe part of who you are. And then one day you look up and realize it's much more than that. Here's the thing. When I started Murder Etc., I promised myself I would never ask for donations because this was never about making money. And even though I knew it might be expensive to produce, I never considered how much time I would spend away from the people I love. Not that this matters to anybody but me, but I used up two vacation days from my real job to produce this episode. This episode alone. I'm actually happy to do it because my family believes in this project just as much as I do. And I'd like to believe I'll have some more vacation days next year. If I did an honest accounting, I'd have to admit I've drained more than our finances here. I've drained way too much time away from my family. So sometime in the middle of all these episodes, I started asking for a little help to support the project. I really didn't expect much, but it turns out you folks are really generous. So thanks. We are still a long ways from breaking even, but we're a lot closer than we were 10 episodes ago when I first started asking for help. So yeah, thanks to every one of you out there my friends, colleagues, listeners, everyone else who's taken the time to send in a donation. Or, in some cases, and I'm talking to you, Lee Jones, multiple donations to the show. Normally, I'd put some thank yous at the end of the show, but this week I've experienced some generosity that frankly goes beyond the bounds of just a simple thank you. So, a special thank you to the Patterson family and to Shirley Rosario. When I saw your donations come in, I actually stopped breathing for a few seconds. So thanks. I'll admit, I absolutely hate asking for financial support. But if you think this work is as important as I do, you can donate with your credit card at paypal.me slash murderetc or via Venmo to our account, murderetc. We have links to those and to our amateurs, etc. group on the front page of our website, murderetcpodcast.com. And again, thanks. Don McIntyre, Miss May's son, almost a half century after the fact, says, in his opinion, his mom, a Greenville saint didn't tell the truth on the witness stand in the Charles Wakefield Jr. death penalty trial. What motivation would she have had to do it? Help Diane. Help Diane to get Mike out 
Don believes Miss May loved her daughter Diane enough to try to help Diane's scofflaw husband. I found out my sister was working with the police detectives that I met at Mother's house about getting Mother to testify, and for her testimony, they was gonna get Mike out of jail. And set off another light bulb. To Don, it made too much sense. I put two and two together. Mother's got this story down just so pat to word for word. Once again, I come to the conclusion she had been programmed, told what to say, and over a period of time she learned it. She never forgot it. Every time I talked to my mother and I'd asked her about the lubricate, it was the same story, word for word. It bothered Don, and then it bothered him again and again. It was the same thing, over and over. Story never changed, never changed. Well, I got to thinking in my travels, had a lot of time to sit there and drive and think, has mother been programmed? Programmed. It's another word for brainwashed. Another word for coached. Something for Don when he earned his badge that made him increasingly uncomfortable. Whenever I got into law enforcement, my line of thinking changed. And I could not get that statement that my mother made out of my head. I just couldn't do it. So I voiced my opinion that this guy they arrested didn't do it. It's not easy for a man to say something like that. That his mother might have sent a man to death row just to help her kin get out of a jam. Especially, as Don will point out again and again, he doesn't have any facts to support what he believes. Fortunately, we do. Here's the thing. Within 48 hours of the Luca murders, nearly eight months before Miss May ever said a word to police. So recall then what Vera saw from her window. Five people gave signed statements to police. One of them was Frank Looper's mother, Rufus Looper's wife, Vera, who said she had watched out her kitchen window as a black man walked up into her husband's garage. Vera saw a young black male. This is Andy Etheridge and I at the scene of the crime talking about the moments leading up to the murders. They had lunch, and Rufus Looper goes back out to start working on this car in the garage. She's going back and forth between picking up their dishes and sees a guy standing like right about where we are right now, sort of walking up and down the sidewalk a little bit. And she turns away, and when she comes back, she sees him walking up the driveway right here. And he walks in. Vera gets her son, narcotics deputy Frank Looper. Frank goes, he gets his service weapon, goes outside, into the garage. And Vera told police that black man she saw go in the garage was now outside again, but doubled back when Frank Looper got there. And turn around and she says, like casually walk back into the garage. By himself. By himself. Frank Looper and his father in the garage. Yes. He turns around, goes back in. She hears the two gunshots and then he runs. And there was one thing, no matter how many police interviews she gave, that Vera Looper never told police she saw. She never told police she saw Miss May McIntyre. 
Not at the point the killer was walking up the driveway, and not as he was running away. Vera Looper never saw Miss May. But don't put too much stock into the statement of one eyewitness here. It's very possible Vera Looper didn't remember everything she saw in the middle of her driveway. The police made sure to point out in their reports, Vera was in a highly emotional state of mind. Maybe, in a second or two, Vera Looper wasn't looking out the window. Miss May walked out of the garage and nearly ran into that man with the interesting platform shoes and got a great look at him, one so good she could remember it eight months later, before Vera Looper ever turned back to the window. Everything happened so fast. And that would be the point that Owens and Mashburn saw him run. But Vera Looper wasn't the only eyewitness that day. Across the street, roughly the distance of two basketball courts, two women were sitting on their porch, Viola Owens and Edna Mashburn. And she was on the front porch. They were both, they were both sitting on their front porch talking. Those two women saw the same man Vera Looper did, running out of the garage. They gave statements to the police the same day. The Greenville News interviewed one of them, and in none of those interviews did either woman mention seeing a Salvation Army collector. Which is interesting, because if Miss May was telling the truth, the car she got into before she drove off was parked in the vacant lot exactly between Viola and Edna and the Looper garage. Those two women gave detailed suspect descriptions to the police, but they never mentioned a thing about seeing Miss May. You look at Charles's mugshot from when they brought him in on January 31st, 1975. That is Eric Gottlieb. He's got like a 10-inch afro and a beard. Gottlieb is the guy folks around here remember as the New York lawyer who came down to defend Charles Wakefield in 2001 and did everything he could to show people when police started looking for the killer in the first week after the murders, they were using the descriptions the verified eyewitnesses gave in the hours after the murders. And then you look at the composite sketch and it looks like Frank Sinatra wearing a, a fedora. Like the guy didn't even look black. It was obvious to him, nearly 20 years before Murder Etc. came out, when he discovered police took statements from five eyewitnesses in the first 48 hours and used those verified eyewitnesses to create their composite photos and sketches. And then there's like a photo composite where they kind of selected photographs of different hairstyles. and None of them looked like the 10-inch afroed Charles Wakefield Jr. Different eyes and different noses and different mouths and kind of assembled them all to create like a amalgam of a, a photograph. Although that person looked black, the hair was pretty short, there was no beard, no mustache. Five people described a suspect that looked maybe like Frank Sinatra, maybe like a young, short-haired black man. It was just very obvious that this was, there was something inconsistent here, something extremely wrong. How wrong? Well, of the people who were definitely on the scene that day and said they saw a man running away, only one of them testified at trial, Mrs. Vera Looper. And get this, no matter how many times Ms. Vera Looper 
looked at Charles Wakefield Jr., she never could or never would say Charles Wakefield was the man she saw in her driveway. The only person who said she saw Charles Wakefield there was Miss May. To put it another way, the one person the verified eyewitnesses didn't see in the Looper driveway was the woman who took an oath, took the stand, and testified Charles Wakefield Jr. was there. That night, Andy Etheridge and I sat on the porch with Don McIntyre, talking about his mom. We thought the most surprising thing we'd hear was Don telling us he didn't think his mom was in the Looper driveway on the day of the murders. We vastly underestimated what Don had to say. We started cleaning out our house, and Lord, did we have stuff to clean out. Miss May retired a little more than 19 years ago. And when she did, Don started getting ready to move his mom to Indiana to live with the rest of her family. Well, in cleaning out mother's stuff, every little box I'd open, I mean, I'd open to see what was in there, see which pile it went in. Well, there's one shoebox I opened, I opened it up, and there was a nickel-plated pistol. I didn't know what caliber it was or what. I wasn't really into guns. Miss May wasn't really into guns either. And Don asked an obvious question. I asked Mama, I said, whose gun is this? She hesitated a minute or two, and she said, oh, that's your daddy's. Don's dad had been dead since the early 1960s. Me, I got no reason to doubt it. It's daddy's. Where'd he go? In storage over here. Several months back, I was cleaning out her stuff and getting it rearranged again. And I found that box with that gun in it. And I still, and I still got it. Don still had the gun. And it wasn't just any gun. It was a 32 caliber gun. A revolver. When South Carolina's top ballistics expert examined the bullets that killed Rufus and Frank Looper, he said it was most likely the bullets came out of a 32 caliber revolver made by a company named Rossi. And when Don pulled that gun out on his back porch... And what I have is a 32 Rossi, nickel-plated. Don was showing us a 32 caliber Rossi revolver, the exact same kind of gun a ballistics expert said killed the loopers. Don, the son of a woman who helped put Charles Wakefield Jr. away. Don who has serious doubts. That revolver belonged to his father. I don't think my daddy owned it. As near as we can tell, it might have been impossible for Don's dad to have owned that gun. Don's dad died in the early 1960s. And the first evidence we can find of a 32 Rossi coming off the production line is the late 1960s. So if it wasn't his dad's gun, then who did it belong to? I don't want to get charged with receiving stolen goods, but I'm totally innocent on it. And if Don is totally innocent, then what exactly is going on here? It sounded like something the Greenville police needed to hear. Turns out, Don says, the Greenville police already knew. He says he told them in the summer of 2019 when a Greenville cold case detective called him down to the law enforcement center wanted me to come in and talk about this Looper case. 
So I went up there and we got talking and I told him what I knew about it. Don says he told the cold case detective just what he'd told us, that he didn't believe his mom's story about being in the Looper driveway on the day of the murders. I told him it was programmed into her. Like every night she would put on a headset and have like a cassette or a recording of it and keep pounding it in, keep pounding it in. Don said he and the detective talked for more than an hour. We went back in the back of the office, talked about it in private. He said he didn't know how much more he could add to it, you know, because it was open and shut as far as he was concerned. But, but during the conversation, Don says he told the detective about the gun he found. And the detective, at first, seemed interested. He said he'd like to look at that gun. But Don left that day and says he forgot about what the detective wanted. And the detective, Don says, never followed up about it. And so that night, as Don, the son of the key witness against Charles Wakefield Jr., held a revolver that was the exact same kind of gun suspected to be the murder weapon, he told Andy Etheridge and I, his wife, who actually works for Greenville County, was going to take the gun to law enforcement officials the following Monday, just in case. The agency that runs it better clear it out of NCIC through a paperwork and a case number. And then it could get sticky from there, you know. I, we talked about maybe that was a gun that was used at Loopers. Back in 1975, police never found the murder weapon. State agents tested more than 100 suspected guns, but never found the right one. But the prosecutor didn't need the gun to convict Charles Wakefield Jr. The prosecutor just needed two witnesses, a jailhouse snitch and Miss May. Attorney Eric Gottlieb remembers the first time he read the trial transcript before he had agreed to help Charles Wakefield. I remember reading the transcript and, and having some reservations, I guess, and, and realizing, well, the only way that this guy didn't do it is if this guy is flat out lying. And number two, uh, May McIntyre is at, at best is honestly mistaken, if not also um, being untruthful. It was Miss May's word against Charles Wakefield Jr.'s. And by now, you know who the jury believed. Miss May spent the rest of her life free. And decades after the fact, Eric Gottlieb recorded this conversation with Charles Wakefield behind prison walls as Wakefield marveled at how well-constructed the case against him turned out to be. And they sat down and they planned it. This is what we're gonna do. And we're gonna try to convict him. They knew if they convicted me, the only thing I could have got was a death sentence. They knew it. Wakefield called it a story, complete with its very own characters. That's what they did. They sat down, they put it down on paper, calculated it. They had a plan. They went and got the people, you know. Whatever it took to get the people and to get them there, that's what they did. It was like a story. We're gonna tell this story about Charles Wakefield, how he went into the Looper's garage and how he robbed and killed the elder Looper and killed his son, and they planned it. They had 13 months to plan it, the details, how they would conspire to kill me. By then, 
everyone had stopped looking for the murder weapon because the only person who could benefit from it was Charles Wakefield Jr. And most people had forgotten about him too. But Don McIntyre says he hadn't forgotten about Charles Wakefield. And one day, he ran into lead investigator Jim Christopher, who by that time was second in command at the State Law Enforcement Division. I run upon Jim Christopher, and now he was a major in SLED. I asked him, was there any way he could get me some time to talk to Charles Wakefield? What do you want to talk to him for? Curiosity. Curiosity about what? It was just idle curiosity. You know, I was a cop then, so I knew how far to take my lingo. Don says Christopher told him he would check on it and get back to him, but that Christopher never did. Don said he wanted to find out if his gut instinct about his mother was right. He just wanted to ask Wakefield one thing. If what mother said about him in court had any truth in it at all, and did he remember any of her testimony, and was any of it true? Don never got close to those answers. Over the years, turned out there were only more questions, like the ones he had in the 1980s about his sister, Diane. And I called home and uh, told me that Diane was in jail. And I said, well, and she said, accessory before and after the fact of murder. That is when Diane McIntyre Coward, the one who convinced her mother May to testify against Charles Wakefield Jr., got arrested for murder herself, along with another man named Ronnie Joe Skelton, the nephew of one-time corrupt cop and Dawson gang bank robber conspirator, Bob Skelton. Diane and Ronnie Joe skated on the murder charge. Self-defense, the authorities said. Skelton went on to kill again. That time, the murder charge got reduced to involuntary manslaughter. Diane McIntyre Cowart did not fare as well. Not long after prosecutors dropped the murder charge against her, Diane was dead. She was on the way home from a nightclub. She hit a bridge and just killed herself instantly. Diane died on New Year's Day, 1990. Mike Cowart lived to be 54 years old and died in 2007. Miss May died in 2010 at the age of 94. If Diane and Mike conspired with Miss May, the truth died with all of them. And so did the story about that gun Don showed us on his back porch. All right, thank you, man. After years of searching for the truth about Miss May and the murder weapon, Andy and I left Don's that night with our heads spinning. <laughs> it had been a whirlwind, and I thought, how could the next day, or even the next week, top the one we had just lived? What do we do tomorrow? <laughs> That's the problem with this thing. Andy and I kept talking as we drove straight home, oblivious to just how sideways everything was about to go. We had recorded more than an hour of conversation with Don McIntyre. He smiled for our camera. He showed us the gun, everything with a serial number. He said his wife was going to give it to someone in law enforcement by the following Monday. And he told us he firmly believes his sister Diane and her husband Mike Cowart coerced his mother to tell a lie on the stand that sent Charles Wakefield Jr 
to death row. Absolutely. I'll go to my grave thinking. I'll go to my grave thinking. And that is how we intended to end episode 22. Until Don McIntyre balked. The day before we recorded this episode, Don told us he was out, not speaking with us anymore. He sent us a text. Here's a quote from it. I don't know why I even bother in this after 40 years of minding my own business. The problem, we had asked Don over and over if the cops had the gun yet. We had asked him to give us the serial number on it. He said it was back in the box where he found it. Finally, on November 1st, just before we put this episode out, the Greenville police confirmed they now have custody of that gun, telling murder, etc. They are currently investigating, quote, this potential evidence and are coordinating any appropriate testing of the firearm. So that's where things stand today. If we hear anything else, we'll be sure to put it on our website, murderetcpodcast.com. And now we work on episode 23. If Miss May was the final nail in the coffin. A guy named Wyatt Earp was the hammer, but nobody, not even the cops, expected that hammer to break the case back open 30 years later. He basically said that the first time he had ever seen Charles was when he testified against him. He didn't know the guy. He was pressured to, to testify falsely against him and that everyone knew Charles didn't kill the loopers. Wyatt Earp rides again on the next Murder Etc.